Hey, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us. Like a, a lot of people who live in this region, I know a little bit about gang violence. I mean, I know what I hear on the news. The stabbings, the drive-bys, the kids, usually kids, killed or wounded or sent away to be locked up for doing those deeds. And uh, on top of that, in my radio work, I have gotten to know uh, some past or present gang members in juvenile hall, in jail, in prisons, and also on the outside. And uh, the obvious question, the one that I always come back to, the one so many of us ask and can't help but ask, is why? Why the endless merry-go-round, the seemingly pointless rivalries and bloodletting and all those lives ruined or damaged for, for what? Well, my guest today on the show, uh, Julia Reynolds, has not only wondered why, but she has gone further to find out who, what, when, where, and how. That is what journalists do, and she is an intrepid one. She has spent the last dozen years getting to know one of California's most notorious gangs in a way that few outsiders ever do. Julie is a staff writer for the Monterey County Herald, and a lot of her reporting takes her to Salinas, which uh, many people consider to be the home base of the crime organization known as Nuestra Familia, as well as its uh, street gang affiliates, the Norteños, or Northerners. Over the years, Julie has logged countless hours interviewing and spending time with gang members, their families, and their victims, as well as the cops and the officials trying to rein in gang crime. She has researched the history of Nuestra Familia, its workings, and the law enforcement efforts aimed at breaking up the gang, so far with limited success. Well, now she has woven all of that into a book of narrative nonfiction, fully documented, factual, though it reads like a novel. It's hot off the presses, and it's called Blood in the Fields, 10 years inside California's Nuestra Familia gang. I got a chance to talk to Julie about it this past week, and that conversation is what we're going to hear in the hour ahead. Stay tuned. Julie, how do you make a knife out of magazine pages and soap? Oh, it's really interesting. So you got to kind of liquefy the soap, and you have a big stack of magazine pages, and you coat each page with the liquefied soap. And then you roll them together really, really, really tight and roll them some more. When you think it's tight enough, you got to keep rolling and let the thing harden. And it just sort of all dissolves into a kind of plastic. And then you sharpen it. And in theory, you could actually stab someone with that. People I interviewed told me they had stabbed someone with that. How did you get to know people who would give you uh, such practical advice? It took a long time to get their trust. I started on this subject in 2002, and it took another year before I had somebody who was willing to share that kind of information with me. The first group of people I got to know were former gang members, because when you've just left this family, and to them it is a family, you don't have anybody to talk to. You've been in this very secular world that no one else knows about. And so I sort of became these kids shrink or counselor or something. Once they trusted me, they kind of unloaded on me. <laughs> There's a scene in your book, uh, in I think the introduction, where you approach a group of kids you think are gangbangers. You're out to make a documentary, which mm -hmm. you eventually did. You co-produced a, a TV documentary called Nuestra Familia. Yes. 
uh, and you didn't know what to say, and you're nervous. You get out of your car, and you say... I say, who wants to be on HBO? <laughs> Um, I actually did not think before those words came out of my mouth. I was just desperate for something. And it wasn't totally dishonest because we were pitching our documentary to HBO. Um, Of course, HBO turned it down. We ended up on PBS. (laughs) But it worked, (laughs) lucky for me. One of them actually participated. One of them actually uh, said yes. Yeah, everybody ran and, you know, threw the F word at me and gave me these looks that were just, like, terrifying. But one guy stayed behind and just said, well, what do you mean? (laughs) And I ended up spending the next two years hanging out with him. I call him GQ. Was he your first uh, deep relationship with a, with a gangbanger? He was the first active gang member uh-huh. I had hung out with because they're not allowed to talk to journalists. This, this gang has a very strict code, and we're considered the establishment to them. Um, so, And in fact, any outsider who's not part of the Brotherhood. Uh, so he, he was the exception. His ego, I think, was so big. Um, he used to go around and tell everybody, this is my producer, you know. <laughs> and, uh, he got in trouble for actually ending up in the documentary. We tried to blur all his tattoos and take out his identifying markers, but they figured out who he was. And later when he went to prison, the gang's uh, punishment made him stab somebody. That's the kind of work you have to do when you get in trouble with the gang. So he's there for life now. No, it wasn't a fatal <laughs> wound. Uh-huh. Or, um, so he, he, he'll he be out again, uh, unless he keeps getting in trouble. That He's kind of a train wreck, ready to happen. What got you into this subject in the first place? I went in kicking and screaming. I did not ever want to cover this topic. I was the editor of El Andar, which was a literary cultural magazine in Watsonville, California. Bilingual Bilingual, bicultural, we called it. Poetry, fiction. Yeah, celebrating Latino intellectual life, really. Um, Some investigative reporting, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the gangster just repulsed me. To me, the gangbangers in our area were like walking, living stereotypes, and I just wanted nothing to do with them, nothing to do with prison culture. There was a prison poet walked in our office one day, and I just turned him around and said, there's the door, you know. but a couple of things got to me. One was the I started just being haunted by the number of kids killing other kids in our area. And I realized if I didn't do this story, maybe somebody else was going to do it and perpetuate those stereotypes. And so I worked at the Center for Investigative Reporting later in San Francisco, and they luckily gave me the chance to really dig into this topic and do something deep. And, and that was 12 years ago. And did you immediately know that Salinas would be sort of the focal point of your, your research? I didn't, and I've lived and worked in this area forever. Um, but I'm all about data. So I did this big old matrix with a couple of interns, and we ran young Latino male gun homicides, uh, California agricultural communities. And it was off the charts. All roads led to Salinas. Uh, and then we found... To a lesser extent, this was also a big problem in pretty much every California farming community. And and that really floored me because I looked at data for rural agricultural America, and that's supposed to be a really safe place to live. Statistically speaking, those are communities without crime, and our, our farm towns were off the charts with violence. Yeah, and some of our beach towns too, right? I mean— 
There's yeah. plenty of gang-related violence here in Santa Cruz. Yes, there is. And now that, you know, the Norteño gangs are in San Jose, San Francisco, so almost every community in Northern California, there's going to be a Norteño gang presence. Why do you think, though, uh, Salinas is ground zero? It's got historic reasons. Um, the history of this gang, starting with the Nuestra Familia, which is the parent company, I call it. That's the prison gang that is kind of the father of all the street gangs. It began almost as a civil rights organization. And that sounds very bizarre to say it, but th those are the origins. You have to remember in the mid-60s, we had the radical prison movement. Black Panther family was organizing in the prisons. And at the same time, the Chicanos in the prisons were organizing and decided that they had to teach themselves to learn to write, to think, to acquire analytical skills with the idea that they wouldn't ever go back to prison. And so the the Salinas being the center of the United Farm Workers and Cesar Chavez's movement kind of engendered this prison counterpart where they borrowed a lot of the language and the lexicon of, of the farm workers. They called their doctrine the cause, which is like la, la causa, yeah, yeah. Of, of the United Farm Workers. They used the farm workers' eagle as a tattoo. But very quickly, that all sort of fell away and they just became a full-time criminal organization and they forgot about the message of nonviolence. We're already throwing terms around here, Nuestra Familia, Norteños. Mm -hmm. um, before we get too deep, um, can you give us the simplified version of the organizational structure, the org chart mm. of this group we're talking about? Sure. Uh, Nuestra Familia 101 here. Yeah. I liken it to a corporate structure in the sense that there's a parent company and there's middle management and then, or maybe it's more military because then the, at the bottom we have the foot soldiers. So the parent company is the prison gang, Nuestra Familia. It's not entirely a prison gang because it does have members and regiments in pretty much every farm town in California, in Northern California. Uh, but it's based in prison. Their headquarters is in Pelican Bay, our supermax in California. So there's a mesa, which is like a board of directors. That's the Spanish term, la mesa, who governs the gang and decides its policies, upholds its and writes and revises its constitution. The middle management um, has had various names over the years. Uh, it does, it's sort of a little bit nameless right now. Uh, but it's it used to be known as Nuestra Raza. And these are guys who are maybe going in and out of prison as compared to the leaders who are doing life without parole. So these guys will carry messages back and forth. They'll help set up regiments. They they're are really organizing these regiments and setting up their economic base, which is dealing drugs, committing robberies, and things like that. The foot soldiers, the Norteños, who are now called Northerners, the name has officially changed. Um, it's They've had a hard time getting that to stick. So most of us still call these foot soldiers the Norteños. They can be working directly for a regiment for the organization, or they can just be a loose band of very young middle school kind of kids who call themselves Norteños and identify with the colors and the this almost a nation that they see themselves as pertaining to. The Norteños are, are kind of a, an identity or a tribe when you get to the very youngest level. And the, at that level, the foot soldiers, the kids, those are the most numerous. 
they probably know very little about the money-making enterprise and the whole apparatus that's above them. So that is the Nuestra Familia, our family. A lot like La Cosa Nostra, I mean, the meaning, mm-hmm. our thing, right? Um, that's that's Nuestra Familia. That's one Mexican-American criminal organization. There's another one. They have a counterpart known yeah. as the Mexican Mafia, also run from prison, right? Yes. With the same kind of hierarchical structure, <clears throat> right down to the street level where you have gangs that call themselves Naturally, Sereños, Southerners. <laughs> so you've got Norteños or Northerners versus Sereños. Uh, the Northerners were red, Sereños, Southerners were blue. Is that right? Yes, they do. Now you got to know specifically Norteños and Nuestra Familia people, right? Yeah. You did not get to know the other side who they're fighting against all the time. Not as well. I do. I have over the years interviewed quite a few Sereño gang members. Um, I. I will say they're a lot less structured. They don't have this direct connection to the Mexican mafia in the same way that the Norteños and their middle management do. Um, They tend to be a little bit more on their own, at least in Northern California. Um, And one thing, a little segue here maybe, Uh, California is kind of the incubator or the creator of the major prison gangs in the United States. They all started in California, and they don't have ethnic boundaries. We have the Aryan Brotherhood, the Black Guerrilla Family, and then the two Latino gangs, the Eme and the Nuestra Familia, and they all have their headquarters in Pelican Bay Prison, and they use similar techniques for communicating with the streets. I mean, they all learn from each other. You said they don't have ethnic boundaries, but you mean they do, right? No, it's actually funny because they're all equal opportunity employers. <laughs> they, really, the Aryan Brotherhood would employ uh, one of their early members was a Jew. Oh, that's um, really strange. An Irish American was one of the early members and co-founders of the Mexican Mafia. The Nuestra Familia, I've known African-American and white members. I've heard about Asian members. Uh, as long as you're putting in the work for the cause, you're allowed to be there. And so they, they, they band under this ethnic identity, but actually it's not their their primary purpose. They're, they're a money-making organization. Wow. Uh, but the majority of people, if we were to wander through their ranks, would be, let's say, Nuestra Familia and the Mexican Mafia would be Mexican-American. Sure, sure, yeah. And Black Gorilla Family, I assume, would mostly be African-American. Yes. <laughs> the Aryans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Skinhead dudes, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and I guess, you know, my point there is, uh, you know, the, uh, obviously we don't just have Latino gangs in California. You right. know, every major ethnic group has had its gangs and has its gangs. Well, again know? and again, when I was reading your book, you know, I mean, the obvious comparison uh, is to Italian gangs, right? Mm-hmm. A generation ago or, sure. or longer. It, you know, people who were either immigrants themselves or the, the sons of immigrants forming this, you know, sort of uh, fraternal organization that, you know, insinuated itself into all kinds of crime, right? You know, it struck me as sort of um, parallel, do you think? In, in its origins, I would say it is, but it's, it's got some really significant differences. And these were th- that was something that fascinated me when I started investigating this gang, because... I'm from Philadelphia. I grew up around the mafia. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not that close, but you know. <laughs> but um, 
when you join this gang, your end result, you know, is going to be either getting killed or life in prison. And my experience with the East Coast mob was, you know, you get a mansion, you've got great lawyers that maybe the police and the DA are bought and sold. You know, your future is to live the good life. Oh, and, and by the way, you may have your hands in all kinds of, quote, legitimate businesses. Exactly. You know, like waste disposal. Exactly. And like waste, that. whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so these guys are aspiring to spend their life in prison. And I was just like, I, I really wanted to understand the logic here. How does that happen? How do you aspire to this? And what I finally have figured out, and I guess the name alludes to that, Nuestra Familia, is that the most important thing that these young people are seeking when they get involved in this is this idealized family that they're willing to sacrifice their life for. And that sacrifice means going to prison, getting shot, whatever it takes. That family that will be there for you no matter what, that's better than your real family. It, it's, it is an unreal family. And of course, you know, the dream is too good to be true, as many of them find out. And one of the things I wanted to show in my writing was just how sordid the life really is. It's not Don Corleone. It's not Scarface. These guys can't afford a lawyer. They're living in the Motel 6 at best, you know, um, some of that's changed in the past few years. Some of them are now getting a nice house in the suburbs for a little while before they get busted. Some of them actually have paid for an, an attorney or two, but that's very, very rare. But it's mostly not wealth and luxury that they get. Um, a lot of them get a cell in a maximum security or even a supermax facility, a kind of hellish place. Yeah, um, and yet, the allure of this doctrine of this organization is so powerful that a lot of otherwise sensible guys see that as a goal they wish to attain. Um, one guy I know, Willie Stokes from Salinas, he dreamed of going to Pelican Bay and being there with the cream of the crop. He was so excited when he was on the bus being taken there because he was going to mingle with these legendary leaders. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Willie Stokes Ramirez, uh, who I don't think is in this book. He's he? not. He's not in He's this not. book, but he was in a documentary that you co-produced called Nuestra Familia, the TV documentary we mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh, and um, at one point, he's describing his arrival at Pelican Bay, which for people like you and me would be... Terrifying. <laughs> terrifying. Terrifying. And he says he was really excited. This is the mm -hmm. pinnacle of his career, you yes. know, coming to the big time, the... You know, um, there's another clip of him that I'd like to play, actually, from the same uh, documentary that you co-produced. He's talking about having gotten to Pelican Bay and then immersing himself in the, quote, higher learning of Nuestra Familia. Those rules and laws they have talks about striving for a better education, self-respect, social status of equality. I mean, all these things are in there. Being a youngster, I read this. It was like I never read this before. I mean, I never heard of something like this. It was like oh. Like the United States Constitution only was their constitution. This is, a, this is an aspect of the gang, I guess an important one, that, you know, they don't just commit criminal acts and funnel money to the higher-ups and all of that. They have rather elaborate doctrines that they teach each other and mm -hmm. codes and, a con he said, a constitution. Yeah, they are very structured. I, I always describe them as disorganized, organized crime. Disorganized because they don't always follow their own rules. 
But the organizational level and the complexity of it is unparalleled. The Mexican mafia is not nearly as structured as the Nuestra Familia is. Both gangs have a schooling system, but the Nuestra Familia is, is very precise. And when they say schooling, they mean it. Uh, it's one of the allures for young people because somebody is taking them uh, into their, you know, wrapping their wings around them and embracing them and telling them, you're smart, you're capable, I'm going to give you responsibilities, and I know you're going to live up to them, and I'm going to be demanding of you, but it's only because you're that good. You have talent that I'm going to cultivate. And so they they memorize the doctrines. Um, there's a, There are a number of documents that the gang has created. The Constitution is, you can only see that when you're at the highest level, um, although there are copies floating around on the internet now. Um, but according to the gang, you can't be exposed to that until you become a Nuestra Familia member. But there are other uh, readings and courses of study that you undertake at the early, from the earliest level on. And this usually begins very often when a kid goes in a juvenile hall or when a young person goes to prison. And once they land in a yard, they will be schooled. They, there will be a, a, an older member who will teach them to read Machiavelli, read Sun Tzu, read all the books on the art of war and analyze them. I was told by former gang members who had just left Pelican Bay that they were using my newspaper stories as study material. They would be assigned to write an essay about my articles and say, what, what does she know and how does she know it? Wow. What sort of articles were these? Uh, I was reporting on the gang's criminal activities in Monterey County for my newspaper, the Monterey Herald. Um, so it would just be the latest development, and I had stories about their increasing use of women in the gangs, even though they're not supposed to be members. Uh, they're not uh, technically not allowed to be a member, yet their role was becoming more and more prominent, and more and more women were getting murdered because they weren't living up to their job duties. You said uh, women, in your book, they are females. That's the <laughs> word you use throughout the book. That's the word all the gang members used. And I and it was interesting to me because that's the term law enforcement uses. <laughs> right. It's a very uh, kind of impersonal, clinical way of referring to people. Yeah. And the first time I heard a kid say that, I was like, why do you call them females? You know, are they're girls or women or whatever. And he goes, well, you know, first of all, I don't want to disrespect anybody because... If oh, I call they her a girl and she's a woman, oh. she might get mad. Or if I call a, a you know, if I don't call her a girl, she'll get mad. So female is just safer. So it was just sort of a generic term for all females. You know, I, I used their language in the book, you know, all the time because I, I want it to be their world and their words. For sure. I mean, you have a glossary in the back, but uh, use a lot of the gang terminology, and uh, some of it will probably creep into this interview. So. <laughs> I'm sure it will. But you say these guys were taking a look at your articles and using them as educational material in prison, mm -hmm. uh, critiquing them for their accuracy. And analyzing and them. And analyzing them. Yeah. So did you find out whether you got high marks or not? Well, I was actually kind of pleased to hear that they were, most of the time they were deciding that I got my information from law enforcement, which was usually never the case. <laughs> Um, I had it from ground sources, so I was glad they thought it was from law enforcement. And they thought that because it was accurate. Is that right? Uh, I'm not sure why they thought it, but it, it, it made me happy because I was like, okay, if you want to believe that, <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> were, you, were you scared at all? Have you ever been scared in your time reporting 
uh, on gangs and, and actually dealing directly with gang members? You know, I'm not, probably not as scared as I should have been. I have had threats over the years, um, and I don't think you know, most of them weren't serious, obviously. They have they told you to stop pursuing a, a story? Never that explicitly, uh-huh. no. No, I was. I did get a message from somebody when the book was coming out saying that they were going to sue me and that others were going to deal with it in their own way. Mm. Um, but there were times when I was with G- GQ sitting in his house. You know, he's a drug dealer and a gang drug dealer, and, I, and I'm just there on the couch watching movies on TV. And then I finally realized like a year later that, whoa, what if there had been a home invasion, you know, that happens to drug dealers. Yeah, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. But never uh, reprisal for revealing things. No, um, I've sort of heard through the grapevine that the leaders appreciated my stories, that they learned from them, like I said. Um, They study them. And so I think the more I reported, that was my safety net kind of protected me because... They wanted me to keep writing. Nobody writes about them. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, they're bored. They're in lockdown 23 hours a day. The, this gives them something to think about and analyze. Uh, I don't know how the reaction is going to be to the book. You know, it's only, you don't know yet. It's been out a week. Oh, it would be fascinating. I, I have I could been find sued out. before by a Nuestra Familia member for defamation. <laughs> but the the death threats didn't seem... That's serious. I want to emphasize that the people who are risking their lives are the people who helped me out in the documentary and in the book, the people who are in it, whose stories I tell. They went into this knowing that they're risking their lives by coming out in the open and and working with me. And that is the real danger, not mine. I'm a white, middle-aged lady. You're a civilian. (laughs) I'm a civilian. I'm not part of this war. Well, some of your key characters uh, do turn uh, against the mob. And they do so in such a way that they're then in sort of protective custody in prison. They're they're separated. They're yes. in the dropout units, right? Yeah. Where they're kept separate from the gangs. Because if not, they might well end up. Oh, they would. If they were on a, a mainline yard, gut. yeah, they yeah. wouldn't last long. Or one of those uh, soap and magazine knives. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right between their ribs. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it is scary stuff. A lot of the people um, you write about don't live to tell their tale. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people killed. And by the way, all the killing is intrafamilial. That's one thing I wanted young people embarking on this lifestyle to see and understand, because you think it's about this war with the Sureños. But once you get past about 13 or 14 or 15, you are most likely to be killed by one of your brethren. There's all kinds of reasons you can be deemed a traitor or you just know too much. Or, you know, they, sometimes people would make up stuff about another guy. They really didn't like the way he looked at his girl, but they'd make up a story about him being a traitor and get the authorization to move on him, as they say. The green light. The green light. There's a lot of that in the book. Guys getting whacked. Uh, some because they want to get out of the gang. Some because they're suspected of being informants. Some because they're a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, or they just happen to rub someone else the wrong way. And power struggles, internal power struggles. Power struggles. Yeah, yeah, it is a bloodbath, really. Yeah, yeah. And that's what, you know, if the, which is the absurd thing about this so-called family, and then it becomes your demise. You know, the one that's going to have your back no matter what is actually going to stab you in the back. But for a kid 
maybe with without any other outlet, it can sure seem romantic and glamorous. It clearly is. Uh, like I said, there's a logic at work, and we just have to decipher it if we want to do anything about it. Because most of these kids were smart kids, good, normal kids. You know, some of them really excellent at sports or with other talents. And yet this gang have found a way to appeal to them, to make them feel more important than those things did. And that's really what I wanted to, to try to figure out. Um, sometimes the steps were very insidious. You know, Tony Ray is in the story who's a police officer, but he was involved in gangs when he was a kid. It was the clothes. He just liked the way they looked. And then from there, you go step by step by step. Um, I know another gang, former gang member now, but at the time he was like a skater kid. And they invited him to a party, but his friend said, you can't go dress like that, skinny jeans and, you know, heavy metal t-shirt. You got to put on the baggy pants, you know, and the baggy shirt. And, and some winos. It, and he got treated like a gang member ever since, the winos, you know? and <laughs> That's shoes, by the way. <laughs> yeah, those little black shoes, you know, we wore them. <laughs> we didn't know. <laughs> but yeah, so it was that simple, you know, and then he, you, you dress like a gang member, you get treated like a gang member, and sometimes it can be just very insidious. Um, other times you're raised in the gang, and then really, you know, what choice did you have? There's one young man you spend a lot of time on in the book, although there are many, many characters in the book. His name, his nickname is Mondo, mm -hmm. uh, short for Armando. Yeah. Armando Frias Jr., right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he describes the allure. First of all, his dad was in gangs, and he looked up to his dad, and his dad sort of started training him to be a tough kid. Mm -hmm. But there's also this. I always looked up to older homeboys, you know, and... and I remember the stories they used to tell when they used to get out, just being around, being young, going to parties in the ball. Yeah, you know, I did this now when I was older. Though, this is what happened. Or, you know, they didn't think I was listening, but I used to listen to a lot of, you know, war stories that they used to talk amongst each other. You know what I'm saying? So I wanted bad, you know what I'm saying, to be able to get out and tell my own. War stories. Yeah. The language that's used in the gang is the language of the military a lot of times. On the streets, you have the soldados, right? Mm -hmm. and you have veteranos, the veterans, and you have regiments, mm -hmm. and you have generals, and you have the wars. And, and you, you have, have captains, lieutenants. Captains, lieutenants, and war stories. Yeah. And the glory and the romance of being a soldier, of being brave, of having, being in combat, all that stuff that actually is a part of our broader culture gets channeled into this. You're right. Um, Mondo, later when he grew up and was in prison, told me, you know, he goes, gosh, I wish I could have just been sent to Iraq to do what I do, mm. because then I would be called a hero. Be legit. Instead of being called this reviled criminal, because my skills could come in handy. He goes, I wish they had something where we could sign up and just go over there and do what they need doing, because I would be good at it. He's probably right about that. Yeah, that was kind of chilling to hear. Um, they definitely see themselves as soldiers, and it also has, it explained to me how they could live these kind of dual lives, because when I first met them, a lot of gang kids didn't fit this stereotype I had of just this horrible thug who cared nothing about any, you know, human life. It wasn't true. They were good grandsons and sons and brothers. And when I went out to eat with them, they would clean off the table and hold the door open. And I realized they, they divided themselves. 
they had their human family person, and then they had their soldier. And when an enemy combatant was in the scenario, they became a very different person. Very, very different. But they were still, the rest of the time, they were a normal teenager. I got the impression you really liked Mondo. Yeah, I would say, we. yeah, we became friends over the years. Um, there's a lot that gives me pause. He's killed people and hurt a lot of people. And I like to think he's a work in progress who's going to improve if he ever does get a chance to leave prison. Um, I wouldn't say he's ready now. He's a very dangerous person. By the time you met him, he was in prison. He was in jail on his way to prison, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, he is one of the central figures of your book, someone whose biography you got to, to really know. And you got to know his father, Big Mondo, mm-hmm. Armando Sr., yeah. um, who's former gang member, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, full of grief about what happened to his son. In fact, here, here's another clip from the documentary. By the way, the documentary that came out in uh, 2006, I think, is that yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Nuestra Familia that you co-produced. And this is Armando Sr. And he's describing a time when he violated his parole in order to get into jail to be with his son, to actually be the celly, the cellmate of his son, before his son was shipped off to, yeah. where was Armando sent to? He went off to California prisons for life. Uh, which uh, prison? He was going to Delano, North Kern okay. State Prison. Before his son went into the state uh, prison system, Armando Sr. spent uh, a few days in a cell with him, and he's describing uh, bunking with his son. My son's going to do a lot of time. Just thinking about it, I wake up, he was on the top bunk, and, and it was hitting me. Reality was hitting me, and I literally would cry. I literally would cry. But I remember getting on my knees and praying and asking God, please don't let me cry, cry loud enough that it's going to wake up my son and he's going to hear me cry. To me, I felt, you know what, this is part of your punishment for contributing to everything you contributed, the bad part about his life. Julie, I want to come back to this probably multiple times in this interview, but how do you, how do you make sense of it? How do seemingly sensitive and nice people, as you say, also have this other side where they're, they're killing people, robbing people, traumatizing people for life? It's hard sometimes. Um, you know, the doctrine is that powerful, the the so-called cause, even though it's almost impossible to decipher what the cause I is. I was going to ask you, what is the cause exactly? It took me years to get somebody to tell me what the cause was because you're not supposed to know if you're not a member. And when I finally found out, it was like they pulled back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz. You know, it was so vague and nebulous that it meant almost nothing. You know, it's unity standing up together, education, equality, social justice, these, you know, grandiose terms that mean almost nothing. Um, Standing up for your raza, your race, and that's it. But it is so powerful that people, you know, are willing to do things like kill for it. I always used to ask gang members, you know, you're standing up for your race. To me, that would mean fighting the man, the system, you know, whatever. But you're killing other young Latinos. How is that standing up for your race, you know? And they would just always say, you don't understand. You don't understand. Uh, The power of teaching is so powerful. They're taught that Sureños are their mortal enemies. 
and that they must fight and keep the Sureño threat away at all costs. The power of honor is is very strong, the idea of being an honorable person, of being respected. And this is true across gangs. I mean, a lot of the research we found, you know, the idea of respect mm-hmm. is very big. Um, one of the things we're learning about gang members is that once they get pretty entrenched, most of them would rather be out. It is not a beautiful lifestyle. It is not glamorous. You mean out of the gang? They They eventually want to get out. Yes, they want to leave the gang um, desperately. It, it's a terrible way to live. You're looking over your shoulder all the time. You don't have enough money. You know your family is afraid of you, worried for you, upset with you. You know you're probably going to go to prison. You might be asked to kill your best friend. You know You didn't sign up for any of this, and yet that becomes your daily life. And most of them, if they had a safe and honorable way to leave, they would do it. But that's the key, the safe and honorable way. Um, and that, that gets to the understanding, the logic of the gangs, um, which has to do with the solutions that are being found. Because there's, there's one or two that I'm a real firm believer in, uh, one called Boston Ceasefire is the common name. And that really relies on understanding gang members and knowing what they want and knowing why they're doing what they're doing. And one of those things is that safe and honorable way out. Mm. It's key, you know. What about, you know, it's a male world, it's young men, young men are full of a need to prove their manhood, you know? Yeah. There are other ways of doing that, you know, there are lots of ways to do that. But to them, the the only avenue seems to be to prove themselves in some kind of warfare situation, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's an illusory war. An illusory um, war, yeah. I was interviewing a Sureño gang member who told me that he had left the life behind because he, last time he went to jail, he realized how badly he broke his mother's heart. And he said he was done with this life. And he wanted to get married with his girl, get an education. And his goal was to buy a house. And I asked him, okay, so you're taking all these really good steps. Tell me, what are you going to do tomorrow if they shoot one of your old homeboys? And he goes, I'm going to have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I go, you're not out. <laughs> you're not out if that's your response. And that's how powerful, you know, that that honor, loyalty. that code of honor, that code of loyalty yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. Well, in your documentary, you asked the the kid you, you call GQ, I think, why? Why the violence? Why the ceaseless war with the Sereños? Mm-hmm. If, I, if I'm remembering right, and he says... Oh, because look what they did to me, and look what they did to my homies. He had a bullet wound in his ankle, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, one of his homeboys also has a wound that he shows you. Yeah. And the obvious question is, well, they did that because someone else did the same thing to them. Exactly. And, and so it goes back into yeah. prehistory. <laughs> exactly. Human. Is this the story of humanity? Maybe. Well, you have the guys who, once they reach what? Their 30s are really itching to get out, or maybe even by their 20s? Yeah, it sort of starts, yeah, for a lot of guys in their mid-20s, and they just go, you know, this is getting old. It's, it's exhausting. Exhausting, It's yeah. an exhausting way to live. Oh, yeah, it messes up your... I'm sure that <sighs> the anxiety at some point yeah. must really mess you up. Yeah, you know? You, you know, when you... Some people have told me, you know, when they're a teenager, you felt like you were in a thriller, you know, a movie, and that's great. And later, you're kind of, okay, I, you don't want to be in a thriller every day. And so you've got these 
veteranos, uh, maybe that's not the right use of the term, but you've got these older guys, and not even that old, 20s, 30s, and older, all saying, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. Why isn't the message getting back from them to kids just 5, 10 or so years younger? Well, you know, I think it is getting through to some of the youngsters at an increasing rate. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that that's the reason that the shootings in Salinas in the last two or three years have involved older people and not so much the youngsters. Um, you know, we don't know why, you know, if the youngsters are getting the message that this leads nowhere. We don't know if it's prevention efforts, but maybe <laughs> they're, but, but they're gang, understanding it better. gang crime is down or just among the youth? It's down in general. Uh, violence is down. They said some thirty-five percent now. Violence. I said crime, but and but most of the violence in the community is gang-related. So that there there could there's a correlation uh-huh. there. But also the youth, the victims um, in the past couple of years have been much older. Uh, about five six years ago, we had fourteen, fifteen, sixteen-year-olds all shooting at each other. That's happening less. We don't know why, so I don't want to make presumptions. Um, I am about data. Mm-hmm. So I like to think that some of these messages from the OGs get down, but you have a really unusual problem with the Norteño gangs and the Nuestra Familia that no other gang has. In other communities around the states, the veteranos, the OGs, can talk to the kids, and they're respected by the kids. And the fact that they're not in the gang anymore is okay, and so the younger ones will listen to them. In the Norteño community, a guy who's left the gang and wants to talk to them, forget it. He's green-lighted. You're not only not going to listen to him, you're probably going to try to find a way to hit him. So they have a very peculiar dilemma where you can't recruit these these groups of OGs to go out and, and do outreach in the community in the way that other gangs mm-hmm. can. By the way, OG stands for? Original gangster. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to remember who coined it. It was a rapper who coined that term, wasn't it? I have no idea. You know, I just Uh always heard it, and then I was like, I guess it's dance or something, and of course I figured it out. That was a long time ago. (laughs) And green-lighted again means um, basically the the, uh, go-ahead has been given to have you offed uh, by the gang. So it's dangerous to come out and denounce the gang if you're an old guy who's come around to seeing the folly of it all. Yeah, it it can be very difficult. There's, I don't want to say it's impossible because I know a lot of former gang members. Um, you have to leave the area usually. You have to just pull away, but don't be bad-mouthing the NF. If you sort of stay away from the politics, as they call it, you, you might be left alone. And one of the things, too, is their hit lists are so long now. There's so many people on their no-good list that, you know, choosing who to go after would be, <laughs> be kind of complicated. Wow. Uh, There was a time in 1998, um, when you talk about it, when a CD came out calling for unity among the Northerners, among the Norteños. Stop killing each other. Mm -hmm. Sounds really great, uh, Mm -hmm. except you realize that it means start just killing Sereños, not not each other. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned this album. It's called uh, G-U-N, Generations of United Norteños. Yeah. Uh, I thought I'd play just a little bit from the introduction. All right. First and foremost, no matter where you are, may that be on the calle or in the pintas, we would like to send a few shots out to our fellow carnales and all Norteños throughout Northern Califas. Much love. 
for those of us who represent, we must continue to respect the old, while at the same time welcoming the new. The primary purpose and goal of this album is to promote unity amongst each and every one of us as Norteños. This is a combined effort to enlighten the worthy, as the time is now that we must leave old attitudes to the past and adopt new and more meaningful and fulfilling ideas. Not only must we expand our mind, we must also explore various facets of life. Just as knowledge can be the key, there is strength in numbers. Therefore, we Norteños can no longer continue to fight against one another. All Norteños must unite with the determination to fight and challenge all those who oppose our unity and advancement towards equal justice. So that was just a little bit uh, from this album called uh, G.U.N. Generations of United Norteños that came out in 1998, uh, a rap album that uh, the premise, part of the premise was Norteños should stick together to fight their common enemy. Yeah, at the time in a lot of the farm towns, like especially in places like Stockton, little Norteño sets were, you know, they were doing what neighborhood gangs do, fighting for their corner and their turf. And the Nuestra Familia felt that they didn't have enough control over these Norteño kids. And so they wanted to to send out this message that you all need to unite together and you all need to be under us. You have to remember that we created El Norte because they felt the Norteños were sort of getting away from them. And so they sent out, they put out this album. They sent out a, a mini writing message throughout the prisons that became known as the Kite to Unite. A kite is a message of tiny little writing that might be thrown down from one prison tier to the next. and then, Or lowered on a thread, maybe, yes. like a kite. Yes, like yeah. a kite, and and then later secreted into the body and taken out of the prison, and the message sent out to the streets. And so the Kite to Unite came out also around that time, and the message was you all need to get together, stop fighting each other, and you all owe allegiance to us, the Nuestra Familia. Hmm. Hmm. One of the objects of all this organization is to channel money, right? It's I would say it's the primary primary reason. Object. Okay, so the kids on the street, the soldados on the street, may be collecting taxes, right, from drug dealers and from they would actually be earning the money that gets taxed. Okay, okay, <laughs> I, I got it Correct wrong. <laughs> My financial uh, learning is is ongoing, yeah. uh, but they would pay taxes to the uh, mob. Yes. And that money gets funneled up to the guys at the top, who I imagine get the biggest cut of everything. You know, it's hard to say. We're, it does get funneled up to the guys at the top. They, but they're in Pelican Bay. What can they do with money? Their prison trust accounts at times have had tens of thousands of dollars in them, um, which you can't buy that much in prison. But Give it to uh, your family, though. Take care of your it's family. It's possible their yeah. families are being taken care of. One thing I've always wanted to investigate and it hasn't been done very well, is where does the money go? I think a lot of it obviously gets you know, filtered off along the way up that chain. Uh, but where does it really go? Uh, in recent years, the NF has started buying businesses and investing in le- so-called legitimate fronts. They bought a cell phone store in Oakland. They invested in tattoo parlors. And they, for a time, they were thinking of buying the Harley-Davidson franchise in Salinas. That didn't come through for some reason. So they're 
is a possibility that money is being laundered through some legitimate businesses, but really we don't know where it goes. They waste an awful lot of it. Mm. <laughs> uh, party with it, spend it, fritter it away, use it. We mm. really don't know. Uh, it would be a great investigation for the IRS. <laughs> a lot of your book is about the efforts of the police and the FBI to break Nostra Familia, to pretty much eradicate the mob through sometimes large-scale coordinated task forces, right, and yeah. operations. There was one called Black Widow back in the 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, it, the arrests culminated in 2001, 2002. The case dragged on for years. And another one called Northern Exposure, Operation or yeah. Operation Northern Exposure. Yeah, great names. Um, you know, these involved cultivating informants, wiretaps, uh, working with police forces across you know, the whole network of towns that mm -hmm. these gangs are working in, right? A lot of effort went into these operations. One of them was headed up by Robert Mueller, who later became um, uh, head of the FBI. Yeah. Uh, this is the Black Widow operation. Mm -hmm. And they did result in a large number of arrests and convictions of mid-level and high-level people, as well as foot soldiers. They did, they did. And at one point you write, uh, the NF, and NF is Nuestra Familia, uh, the NF's leadership had at last been beaten down, nearly dismantled. And then I'm going to add three dots there. But already there were signs it was preparing to rise again. With each new guilty verdict, the gang branched out, organizing more deeply within the federal prisons. This is after some of the leaders had been sent out to the Supermax facility in Colorado, right? Florence, Colorado. And into other federal prisons. Other federal prisons where presumably they wouldn't be able to operate uh, like they do at Pelican Bay. That was the whole logic of Robert Mueller's Operation Black Widow, was to break up their support system in California, where they had wives and girlfriends coming to visit and deliver messages. They had parolees taking their orders out to the streets. So they thought they would break up their power base, disseminate them throughout the federal prison system, and that that would somehow be the end of it. But I guess like cancer, you know, these... It, it metastasized instead. Um, even Judge Breyer, who presided over Operation Black Widow, when the case finally came to a conclusion, he gave a very somber statement that only time will tell to see if this was worth it or if it has only made it worse by putting them throughout the federal prisons. Um, By the way, this isn't Stephen Breyer. You mean a different This is Judge Breyer. Charles Breyer, his yeah. brother. Oh, really? His, his brother? brother yeah. Wow. Um, how do they manage to keep the network alive when they're in these supermax facilities? Some of these are places where you barely ever see another human being. You, you might be kept in a cell by yourself and then let out through an automatic you know, system to a tiny yard for an hour and then back into your cell without actually dealing with any other prisoner. How do they do it? Well, as one gang member said to me, there is always a way. <laughs> and there is. Um, they, we can't deny people visits no matter what kind of prison they're in. The Constitution you know, forbids cruel and unusual punishment. We can't forbid them from writing letters. We can read their letters, um, but they can write love letters, and there can be code in those letters. They might not be sent to a woman at all, but they read and look like a love letter. Mm, um, but you're really supposed to be reading every fifth word or something exactly, like that. Exactly, uh -huh. exactly. Um, they used Aztec. Uh, the Nahuatl language um, to have code words for different things. Um, it's it's not 
all that difficult. It's slow and cumbersome, but they manage to communicate. You know, on the one hand, human ingenuity is just so impressive. You could just marvel at it if you were Well, you got to figure these you guys are bummed out by the crime that was being committed. That you know, that there's a couple aspects to that. One is they're sitting in a cell for 23 hours a day with nothing to do but think. Right. So they're going to come up with some pretty And that that other hour is the one in the yard that I things. mentioned, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and that yard is really a cement block like a shipping container. Yeah, you yeah, know? it's nothing there. But the other thing is I always it drives me crazy cuz I always think if we could emulate their teaching methods and use them for like to teach kids good stuff <laughs> because they're they're very effective. And they're taking kids sometimes who've pretty much dropped out of traditional education who are uninterested yeah, in it. And right? making them literate and articulate and, well, and analytical thinkers. And you just go, gosh, why can't we, you know, just let's borrow the textbook but change the context, you know? Yeah, well I mean that is one of the things. I mean I've not nearly to the extent that you have, but I've met kids involved in gangs and also ex-gang bangers, you know. And um, you see so much potential. You know, you see bright people. You do. You, you see do. people who are really nice outside of the the war zone, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you say, why couldn't we, society, have engaged them better so that they didn't have to go in this other direction? I mean, that's the real question. The little Mondo in the book has opportunity after opportunity to leave. There's all these turning points when you, you know, feel like, oh, he's going to do it, you know. And I know people who worked really hard who remembered him when he was a kid and worked hard to try to get him going another direction. But when you have the force, let's say in his case, of a family of uncles and cousins who were so involved in this life, who were telling you, you're going to be this and we're going to love and honor you for it. Uh, we always have to ask ourselves, what choice did he have? Um, that that has been a, a burning question in Salinas because people there know the pressures that kids are under and there's not a clear answer to it. You know, I asked Armando, everyone says you didn't have a choice and he goes, I had a choice. I I just he was a really good boxer and one of his sparring partners ended up becoming an Olympian. Um and he was just as good as that other kid, but he just said, I liked the partying and the gang banging better. Mm. You know, he made a choice and in his words, I don't know if I see it the same way, you know. When you raise someone and tell them this is who you should be, don't you want to be that? <laughs> you know? Hmm. We've been talking a lot about facts, but this is a narrative. This is a story that you're telling. Uh, you do not present us with a mountain of data. You do not give us a big case file. You know What you've given us is something like a nonfiction novel. It follows specific characters, describes them vividly, describes situations vividly, puts us in situations and in their heads you know, mm -hmm. including some super high tension, white knuckle thriller type situations where guys are, you know, going out to commit what would have been the Salinas equivalent of the St. Valentine's Day massacre. Yeah. And they're headed off almost by pure luck because the cops heard something over a wire just in time to get to the yeah, the uh, site first. But anyway, this is a thrilling book. Um, it's one that's hard to stop reading. Um, so you're doing something you, <laughs> you call an exquisite challenge. <laughs> yeah. It's also a kind of a high wire act because, you know, if you go too far in the direction of fictional style entertainment, you leave the truth behind. 
You say in the outset, though, at the outset of your book, that um, you did not invent any dialogue. Correct. That's pretty unusual. If you're going to tell a story like this and you really want to have dialogue, sometimes you have to do some serious inventing. Well, I'm a journalist. <laughs> um, I can't. You're I just not, can't let would, myself do it. You would that. not be the first one to go cross the line into semi-fiction. Well, I definitely don't want to be one of those. So um, instead, you had to do just unbelievably laborious research. Yeah, um, but I love that. The research was, it's actually the fun part. I mean, this is a very dreary, sobering topic, very somber. Um, but the research, I just love. And almost, when when you're that kind of writer, you almost can't stop because everything you find is like, oh my goodness, look what I just found. And you you want to include it all because it's all so cool. You Can know? you tell me, Julie? And you worked hard to get it. <laughs> just roughly how many hours went into this book? I can't even say because I, you know, I researched this topic beginning in 2002. I didn't start writing a book till 2009. So there's all those years. Oh, I'm including the research. Thousands, uh, thousands of hours. I mean, it's 12 years of my life. And, you know, I've reported plenty of other things along the lines, but it probably, you know, a third to half of that time was doing this. So I read your, your equivalent of footnotes. So I saw how you got this information. How could you possibly know what was said between two guys, one of whom shoots another, you know, and kills him? You know? Well, I, I was very fortunate. Like uh, only a few narrative nonfiction writers are. Um, Kurt Eichenwald's another one who wrote this fabulous book, The Informant. He and I were both lucky. We had informants wearing body wires. And so we have the real dialogue. I have transcripts and tapes. Um, I have a mountain of what's called court discovery, which is all these kinds of documents that went into Operation Black Widow. I haven't even read it all. That have verbatim transcripts. Verbatim transcripts, recordings. Um, some cases I have video of the, the gang meeting in the motel room. Um, and so I was able to use the real dialogue. And it, real dialogue is is wonderful because you, know, you have these, oh my goodness, moments. At the same time, it's maddening because real life dialogue isn't like the dialogue you read in a novel. It's disorganized. Yeah, and you <laughs> kind of get what they're saying. So you have to do a, a lot of very judicious pairing without changing the essence of it. But, you know, there there's so many masters of this style out there who were my models, like Kurt Eichenwald, Mark Bowden with Black Hawk Down, um, you know, Krakauer, uh, Laura Hillenbrand who did Seabiscuit, and unbroken, you know, they can write about subjects I don't even care about. You know, there is some invented dialogue in the book, but it's not invented by me. It's probably, you know, little Mondo recollecting a conversation, but I'll use his recollection or Tony Reyes, not the, yours. the police officer. Yeah. And when you get in the head of a character, in fact, I'd like to read a little bit of a example. Um, this is a pretty fascinating scene where a Salinas cop, known only as RoboCop in the book, you didn't name him. How come? Well, there's a few names I changed in the book, and uh, that was one of the few things that I did that was fiction, and I say so. Um, I had to change several names to protect people. In other cases, I didn't name them because they're just known by their street names. That's, so on that's the street, he's known know as RoboCop yeah. for his ruthless efficiency. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a very good way to put it, and he, and he is. He's a very amazing. skilled guy. An incredible gang officer. And this is a scene where he is um, basically turning a gang member, that is, turning him into an informant, uh, by showing this gang member that he's got enough 
on him, mm-hmm. you know, to put him away for a long time and get him in real trouble. Yeah. Uh, and this uh, gang member's named Guarito. I don't know if you changed his name. He was known as Guarito. That's his street Guarito. name. Okay. Yeah. So this is Robocop talking to Guarito. And it uh, just to give uh, listeners a little orientation here, he's going to refer to some stuff he has on tape that he's collected through a, a wiretap, through a wire. Yeah. 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 So Guarito knows he's really screwed. Something I want you to listen to, okay? Robocop said, is a tape machine word to life? Now, this is quoting from the tape. Okay, Guarito, what are you going to say? A familiar voice asked. Here's what we want you to do. That's from the tape. Now we're in Guarito's head. It says, he says, holy shit, it was that meetup in Gonzo, that's the town of Gonzales, with Mo after Maikio was killed. And back to the tape. If you get questioned, we want you to tell whoever questioned you that Maikio asked you for a ride, you picked him up. This was unreal. Guarito was so fucking busted. The recording was word for word the same line of shit he'd just tried to put over on those cops. And then the, the recording continues. You dropped him off at the bar, the Harmony. A million words fought to escape Guarito's mouth. Why the feds? Was he supposed to testify? His family, what was going to happen to them? And then it's the voice of uh, Robocop saying, well, that's something you have to work on. We have to work on. It was shocking how life could be flipped on its head in a single day. He had so many things to worry about. What would his family think of him? What would they say if the FBI showed up and told them they had an hour to pack and move? And would these cops even keep their word on that? So that was a complicated passage to read on the radio because there were a lot of voices there. Robocop, the tape, Guarito yeah. talking. some actors. Too. Yeah, and, yeah. and Guarito's <laughs> own thoughts. Yeah. How'd you get in his head? I never met Guarito. Um, I got that from other parts of the dialogue of the transcript that I'm just paraphrasing there. You know, he said those things. He had those worries. Um, I had to do it that way. I also knew his life situation. Um, one of the, like I say, the exquisite challenge of writing narrative nonfiction, I can't presume to know what's in somebody's head. So I have to use their words. Or in one case, I wrote a chapter from the point of view of a dead man who I've never met. And I, how am I going to get in his that head? That was Sal Castaneda. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. so and I was going to ask you about him, too. You talk about him the night he was he was murdered yeah. by fellow gang members. And so I had to look at what his situation was. And you write, there's, there's an art to the writing to not say he thought this. Um, there's a moment when he's going over the Golden Gate Bridge in the Greyhound bus. He's just been released from prison. From San Quentin Prison. Yeah. And I knew he was riding the Greyhound bus because in the discovery I saw a copy of the bus ticket. I knew they drove him to the Greyhound station. I I know that's the, the procedure at the time. So I can describe that, you know, without walking him <laughs> onto that bus. What I didn't know is did he get on the bus and fall asleep? Did he talk to the guy next to him the whole time, or did he look out the window? So I describe what is seen on that road. I know the road he took, and I know when the lights of Salinas show up because I've driven it a gazillion times. So you write with a certain artfulness mm-hmm. to build a scene. And you knew from other people that he was excited to be out and had no premonition that the yeah. order had been given to kill him because he had stood up for his irritating brother while in prison. Yeah, so I knew from the brother and other people who knew him what his situation was, that he had been pulling towards his real family and away from Nuestra Familia. And that was enough to get him shot 
yeah. and dumped in an artichoke field. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so those, those are the kinds of, of challenges of this kind of writing. But um, mm. well, I really saw this all as a great big soap opera. <laughs> um, ten years in the lives of a lot of people. It's a soap opera. <laughs> you know, it's Dallas, but Salinas. Well, I wanted to ask you that because one danger is you get too far into the fiction and you leave the facts behind. You didn't do that. The other is that you make it so entertaining that we lose track of the stakes involved. Like, we Americans, maybe everybody now in the world, have been trained by popular media to enjoy reading about crimes, mm, right? Mm, There's almost nothing more thrilling and edge of the seat than that moment when someone like Sal is going to get shot. And then you have to know that's a real person. Yeah. Uh, and that happened not that far from here. Uh, so that was a tough one, too. I mean, you, how did you feel about that when you were writing? You know, I guess I probably didn't realize that, you know, because to me this was all real because I had reported it. There is a numbness that comes in when you're a crime reporter after repeated exposure to this trauma because you really, it is trauma. It, it builds up. You go to crime scene after crime scene and see grieving mother after grieving mother. You build up a thick skin, but you also have an inner trauma that's simmering there, I think. Are you as thick-skinned as a cop at this point? I don't know. Maybe, no, probably not. <laughs> do you make cynical jokes about the crimes? I try not to. You know, I do have a very dark sense of humor. And, you know, when I'm with these guys, especially, you know, either with cops or gang members, you sometimes forget and sort of go along with the jokes. But I always try to pull back because I'm very serious about the solutions and about the scope of this tragedy. And pull back because I remember the mothers and the sisters, and they, they are embedded in my brain. I used to tell some of these gang kids, you don't see the trauma I see. You shoot somebody and run away. I'm the one who sees the brain on the sidewalk. The paramedics see that and the cops. We see a mother running up to the police tape, and she can't get in and hug her kid. You never see that. And they go, yeah, yeah, you're right. Or sometimes they say maybe what GQ said to you in the documentary, which is, it's not my mother. Yeah, yeah. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, Ooh. that's cold. <laughs> it was really cold. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, it, it, reflecting more on some of the people I've met, it, it feels as though part of the problem is immaturity, you know, because a lot of these people will wake up just a little later in their lives. I've well, met so many guys in prison who are look back and say, why did I do that? The science is there. We know it. You know, I, I did a story once on the teenage brain, and this brain scientist at MIT said, you know, the car rental companies have it right. You're not, you know, a, a safe and <laughs> acceptable adult until you're 26. Until then, you're at risk, mm. you know, because the brain is still the prefrontal cortex, the consequences, the sense of any kind of future is not there. And growing up in a very, very poor community, that sense of future is even li more limited by reality, not just your brain, you know. Some people see that they don't, you know. A lot of um, the gang members who you got to know, a significant number of them, end up utterly disillusioned, disenchanted. Almost all of them. Almost all of them sooner or later. Yeah. 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 I'm sure G GQ will be there at some point. At some point, yeah. But yeah. Um, also Tony Reyes, mm -hmm. the detective, one of the heroes in your book. 
Yeah, I, I found that the Latino gang officers in our area are just these unsung heroes. You never hear about them, read about them, but they approach the job with such passion and, and humanity. Um, they don't have any problem locking these guys up, but they don't see them as scum, as something separate from them. They they understand because they've been around it in their neighborhood, or in Tony's case, he was involved in this life. But Tony ends up discouraged uh, in the book. He's discouraged by his own brotherhood of law enforcement. There's a parallel with the gang. Um it's not a coincidence that he felt the same kind of letdown that little Mondo felt. I believed in this thing. He and the local Latino gang officers, they know the the price that their community pays with the violence. And their whole thing was to stop the violence. And that's why they organized Operation Northern Exposure, to stop these killings that were, they were, weren't just going on in Salinas. They were going on in Castroville and Watsonville and all these little communities that hadn't had that before. And... Other people had different aims in mind. Um, you know, I know some very great FBI agents, but it's hard sometimes not to feel that the FBI takeover of of Operation Northern Exposure didn't have some very dreadful consequences because they weren't concerned about the murders. They were concerned about building a drug case. Well, they were being pragmatic, right? They knew how difficult it is to build a murder case, uh, easier to build a drug case. And for good reason. Um, in Operation Black Widow, while they were trying to build a racketeering case, which includes murder charges, that meant people got killed. Um, it was kind of out of control. So, And, and it, it's maddeningly, impo- maddeningly impossible to infiltrate this gang. So it is understandable why they went the route of the drug cases. It's, it was a very effective way to prosecute the, the regiments. But if Tony had had his way, he might have intervened and stopped the killing of certain people, uh, for instance, an informant uh, who he'd gotten to know. And instead, mm-hmm. it sounds like the Fed's uh, you know, strategy was different and people might have died while they were waiting to gather ev- more evidence rather than stepping in. Not just Tony, but a, a number of local cops had that feeling, this anger and resentment. Um, they felt they had done all the groundwork to bring down the Salinas Regiment. And when they were just close to finding out who was running everything and putting up a wire so that they could find out what crimes they planned to commit so they could intervene before they were committed, um, they had it taken out of their hands. And you know, it's an old stereotype from the TV cop shows that the local guys hate the feds, you know. And I, you know, had one editor didn't like the book because of that, you know, but I'm like, what? It's true. It's it's reality. Uh, <laughs> I, I didn't make it up. Um, and maybe we better understand more about why that's true, you know. So um, so Tony had his own brotherhood that, that he felt had also... Uh, purported these ideals in the same way that the NF purports its ideals to the youngsters, and mm. he felt that that brotherhood let him down. Mm. Uh, you write, in fact, that uh, Tony Reyes concluded, I'm quoting from your book, the NF, that is uh, Nuestra Familia, was really a disease that infected not only kids, but law enforcement too. It was malignant, a thing that couldn't stop multiplying, spreading, ruining healthy things, and making all who encountered it sick from the inside out. That was how he felt about it, sick from the inside out. How how did the NF malignancy spread to law enforcement? 
around the time Black Widow concluded, it became, as he said, the sexiest thing in law enforcement. Everybody wanted to set up an NF task force because this gang was so intriguing, its sophistication and everything. And gang officers can sort of get addicted to to the gang, you know, of learning its intricacies, um, the same way an academic might, you know, a scholar, any detective gets immersed in that world. Maybe I do too, as a a reporter. Yeah, me as a reader too. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully. And so, you know, all these NF task forces were springing up all over the state and everybody wanted to take them, everybody wanted credit, and they actually did some very important work. Um, the the NF right now is in a bit of disarray. Um, we'll see if and how they regroup. Um, they did strike um, some important blows to the gang. I won't I won't deny them that. But the feeling was that everybody wanted a piece of it, and in that sense, that's where the malignancy was. It's like well, you know, you just want to grandstand and t- and take these cases and get the glory. It, it became an ego trip. Mm. Do you think your your book will be available in prisons? Uh, you know, I've there are other books about the Nuestra Familia written by former members that have made it in. <laughs> so um, I think if it makes it in, it's going to be widely read. I'm sure. I'm sure it. Do would you be. think you'll hear back on the reaction? Yeah, yeah, I think I will. It's it's going to take a little while. Um, you know, I'll be curious what I hear from the leaders of the gang. Um, how, how would you hear from them? A couple of guys wrote to me around the time the documentary came out, so I assume I'll hear from them again. Uh-huh. Uh, they they did not cooperate with this book. <laughs> <laughs> so. No, I don't think they'll be totally happy, but they might be impressed. It, you never know. I've In my years of doing this, sometimes the, the most innocuous thing is what makes somebody angry. You know, if you you described his looks in a way he didn't like. You know, not it didn't matter that you said he committed four murders. It's you know how you describe. No, that's the good face. part. That's the cool <laughs> part. So it's yeah. Who knows? Uh, I try not to think about that. I always read the acknowledgments in books and learn some things. And uh, in yours, <laughs> among the people you thank is someone you call Don Quixote. Wherever you are, who is, who is this? I don't know. <laughs> um, I can't believe you read the acknowledgments. Wow. Um, he was an anonymous source who helped me for many years with a lot of gang intelligence, um, all kinds of great Over the stuff. phone? No, email mainly. And uh, I never found out who he was or where he worked or if he's a he. How do you double check on his or her uh, you know, veracity? I would usually take his information as leads, and then uh-huh. I'd check them out the uh-huh. usual way. You and know, they were it's good like, leads, huh? Um, always, yeah. He always. never, you know, because I'd always wondered, is this this guy could be steering me up, you know, a rabbit hole or something? But um, he always checked out. So deep, Whoever thro- he deep throat. I had a deep throat. Wow, yeah. wow. You write of Salinas. Uh, this place where I spend my working days is a contradiction of rural serenity and jagged sorrow. And I can say with honesty that it tears my heart in two. It does. The place is so beautiful. You know, it's Steinbeck country. Um, I drive every day and just am in awe every single time I'm going through that valley. Um, It also has become this sort of map imprinted on my psyche of terrible tragedies. I know where every woman who's been murdered and dumped in a field, 
you know, when I see the name of a road, Wild Horse Canyon Road, I know who got killed there. So I have this very terrible mental murder map because of the reporting I've done. And so I love the place, and the sorrow, I guess, is that much greater because when a place is so beautiful and so full of potential, too, um, and not just potential, but great acts of heroism. You know, this is the place where the, the lettuce strike occurred. You know, the most important thing in the United Farm Workers Movement that led to overhaul of labor laws. This is the place where Cesar Chavez was jailed. Um, this is the birthplace of Steinbeck, you know, who wrote about it with that same sense of pain and beauty even that long ago. Salinas is a character in the book. I, I, I approached it as that. It's, it's part of the story. It's more than a setting. It, it's, a, it's a part of the story. Will you be back there reporting in Salinas uh, in the next day or two? I will be there tomorrow. Yes. Well, thanks for taking time out to talk to me. Oh, it's it's a lot of fun. This is a really interesting uh, format. I love it. You get to dig a little deeper. Julia Reynolds is a staff writer for the Monterey County Herald newspaper, and she is the author of Blood in the Fields, 10 Years Inside California's Nuestra Familia Gang. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. I'll be back next week. And, uh, of course, you can always listen to and uh, learn about past shows at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. Or you can tune in via all manner of podcast apps like the Stitcher Radio app, iTunes, SoundCloud, and a whole bunch of others. It's a very easy way to listen on your smartphone or tablet. So long until next week. ¶¶